church. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us this morning to the foot of the cross, as it were, to remind us that we need our Lord. And what a joy and privilege it is to know that he is there, ready to receive and hear and change us. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to the New Testament book of Philippians, where we are continuing a series. We're about halfway through this book of Philippians right now. And uh, this is a good place to actually take a little bit of a break. This will be the last sermon in the Philippians series. We're going to take a couple couple weeks break for Palm Sunday next week and then Easter the following week to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And then right after Easter, we will pick Philippians up and continue out the rest of this book. And we're going to see that while it's a, a bit of a break from the series in Philippians, the truths of Easter are actually right at the heart of the teachings of the Bible in the book of Philippians. And so God has great things, I think, in store for all of us. We're in uh, the end of chapter 2 this morning. And you know, sometimes as I I read this uh, passage this week, preparing for this morning, I realized sometimes as people, we just need to um, see something in order to really believe that it's possible. You know what I mean? Sometimes we don't even know what's possible for us to experience until we see other people who are either going through it or who have gone through it, and like their experience can help open up vistas for us of of human experience that maybe we didn't even know was possible. Uh, Certainly every parent knows that, right? Uh, Parenting is a delight. It is also exhausting, and it's a long haul, is it not? (laughs) And yes, I got a lot of enthusiastic amens there. All right, we parents know this. And yet, how encouraging is it when you're in the midst of it and, and you love your kids, and, but you're pouring yourself out and you're saying, man, this is a long haul. I don't know if I can make it. And then you look around, maybe your family or your church, and you see all these people who's, who have empty nested already. And they've, they've done it well and they lived through it. And you go, this is possible. <laughs> this is possible. Uh, if you're an empty nester, you are a great encouragement to those who are not. Don't ever downplay that. Um, speaking of kids, my oldest kid is back for spring break today. Yay. Uh, she's off at, uh, hey, that's right. You can applaud for her. She hates it. I love it. So go ahead. I've told her, I'm like, I, I told her I was going to say this. She said, yeah, that's fine. I'm like, I won't make a big deal out of you. And I just lied. So anyway, um, she's off at nursing school at California Baptist University and uh, down Southern California. And it is really hard. I mean, she's certainly got moments where she's like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. <laughs> But then she, you know, gets on a mission team with a girl who's about to graduate from the nursing program a couple years ahead of her. And she's like, she's surviving. (laughs) You can do this. Um, You can survive this. It's a huge lift. Or there's other things too. You know, maybe um, you've been a chain smoker for years and you're like, I'm going to beat this habit. I want to quit smoking. And you try. And it is really, really hard. And maybe you have successes and setbacks and you just kind of, and it kind of seems like, I don't know, is it ever going to change? But then you see examples who have, of others who have beaten the addiction. And that is such a lift to the soul because you realize like this is possible and it can keep you going. That's all God intended, I think. And actually, sort of this um, need to be able to see examples to know what's really possible is, is part of what God intends in the community that happens within a church, our relationships with one another. That's actually what this morning's passage of scripture is all about. Now, you may have noticed earlier when Jordan read this for us, it's um, qualitatively different than what we've seen in the book of Philippians so far. Uh, This passage is, uh, it, it reads different, it feels different, it's far more personal than what has come before. It's far more, um, 
biographical. It's about individual people. It's far more specific to uh, the, the lives and the relationships of people who lived 2,000 years ago, and they knew each other, but like it's a long and far away experience for us, and that, that all stuff all takes center stage. And so we got this passage that's way more biographical than it is like, you know, dense and theological with these deep truths of Scripture that were being taught. And yet, this passage fits the larger context of what the book of Philippians has been telling us. In fact, so far, the Apostle Paul, who was writing this letter initially to the church in the ancient city of Philippi, hence the word Philippians, what he's been calling us to is um, to live a God-saturated joy-filled life that puts the gospel of Jesus on display for the world to see. In a nutshell, that's, that's the essence of it. And right at the heart of that message is this word joy. Joy, as we've sort of subtitled this series, joy in Christ exalted. The experience of deep-seated joy in the fact that Christ is exalted that transcends any of my personal circumstances. That, when a church experiences it together, is what puts the truth of the gospel on display. That's what we're being called to. He helped us see the truth and the beauty of Christ that can lead to that joy back at the beginning of chapter 2 uh, in verses 6 through 11, one of the best known parts of this book where he explains the gospel to us that in Jesus Christ, God became a man, which is unfathomable in and of itself, but then he further humbled himself, the Bible says, to the point of death, even the humiliating and excruciating death on a cross. And he did this to pay for your sins and my sins. This is the God whom we serve. And then, having poured himself out that far, he was then raised not only from the dead, but returned to heaven to not only resume his previous place of exaltation, where he is worthy of joy and honor and glory because he's powerful and he's amazing and he's beautiful, but now he is also incredibly, he's seen to be incredibly loving, that he would sacrifice, willingly sacrifice that for you and for me. In every possible way, he is worthy of praise and his character and his example elicits great beauty and spontaneous responses of joy and praise when we see it correctly. That's the good news of the gospel. And this reality is so astounding and beautiful that it has the power to reorient your entire being as a person. It reorients our entire world so that the Apostle Paul could even say from prison, as he did in chapter 1, that he was happy, uh, even though he was incarcerated unfairly, and he was not happy about that, and even though there were people who were using his incarceration and his inability to get out and defend himself to kind of put him down and, and to, in order to raise themselves up, they were sort of besmirching his name. So this is like double problems. In the midst of all of it, he can say, it doesn't matter. I'm still good. Why? Because the name of Jesus is being exalted. That's how powerfully reorienting the beauty of Christ is. Joy in Christ will change your life. That's what we've been seeing so far. Now, at this point... I feel like the letter of Philippians almost takes a deep breath and gives us the permission to do that as well. And to step back and to say, okay, that's big. That's lofty stuff. Can we be honest for a second? Is that real? Is it real? Is that kind of joy that is so powerful it can fundamentally reorient your entire being, is that a real thing that can actually be experienced in this life? Is biblical joy real? That's really the question I think this passage this morning is designed <clears throat> to answer. 
Uh, there's a lot of different angles at which we might be asking that question, whether we're willing to give voice to it or whether it's more of a subconscious thing. It wouldn't surprise me if most of us kind of wonder that at some point when you read things like this in the Bible. Is that real? Maybe we believe in a happiness that comes from fulfilling your purpose. Like, that's not hard for me to understand. Or maybe I believe that you can be happy if you find love or if you, you know, live a meaningful life. These are all things that we do or at least have some significant control over. But the idea of an even deeper happiness that comes from simply being served by somebody else, a happiness that comes not from within me, but from within someone else, does that exist? Or perhaps you hear all this talk of transforming joy as somewhat idealistic. That's another way to sort of ask if it's real. It's like, I agree with it. I don't, I don't reject it. I don't say it's wrong. But it seems like idealistic, you know? Um, maybe we say, like, it's, it's one of those things that it, it's good to strive for and to reach for, but nobody's ever going to really experience that in, in this life, at least, you know? It's, in that sense, it's kind of ideal. It's like one of those lofty goals, but it's not something you're ever supposed to attain, and so it, it doesn't seem quite as real. It's just something to reach for. That's the place I think many uh, church-going Christians find ourselves in, if we're honest, and maybe this is you, maybe not. But the dangers are it can lead toward either becoming jaded toward what the Bible says. Because we hear all this big, lofty language about great joy that transcends our circumstances, and we go, I've never experienced that. And I'm a Christian. (laughs) And so we either say it's idealistic, the Bible is using language of a real experience, but it's not a real experience. It's just kind of something to aspire toward, but it's not real. And so we get a little bit jaded about what the Bible is saying, and we hear all of its lofty language sort of through that grid. Or maybe, just as bad, we assume that it is real real. I've never experienced it, and so we assume something's wrong with me. And it just kind of, the more I hear God calling me to a joy I've never experienced, the more I feel guilty and I pull further away from him rather than toward him. Well, friends, wherever you're at with regard to that question, is this kind of biblical joy that's being described here, is it real? Wherever you're at, the Bible has something to say to those of us who are in any of these categories. What we're going to see briefly this morning is three individual people who are mentioned in this passage. The Apostle Paul himself, who's writing it, and then two of his closest friends, Timothy, and I believe it's Epaphroditus, Jordan. Now, I know that on authority that that's how they would have pronounced it in the first century, and I can say that because nobody from the first century is alive to correct me, so I could be wrong, too, but that's how we're going to go with it. (laughs) Uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these two guys. Now, in each case, each one of their personal examples tells us something about biblical joy in the real world. So we're going to see three guys, briefly, three quick observations about biblical joy, And then we're going to end with one sort of exhortation. There is one um, takeaway that's in this passage, what we're supposed to do with this information. So that's where we're headed this morning. We start right away with the Apostle Paul himself. Um, We'll spend actually a little more time on him and a little less on the other two. Interestingly, um, the Apostle Paul is, is the author. He's the writer. But he talks a lot about his personal experience in life and with these two guys in particular as he is writing this passage. He talks about his experience sort of rationally, how he thinks about his life. He also talks about it emotionally, some of the different emotions that he experiences. And one thing we learn about biblical joy when the Apostle Paul talks is that biblical joy does not mean the absence of negative experiences like anxiety, fear, or sorrow. And we've already seen that the Apostle Paul is a joy guy, right? I mean, he embodies this. This is the guy that 
says he experiences joy even though he's unfairly incarcerated and people are, you know, using, taking advantage of that fact to besmirch his reputation. And he's still happy because the name of Jesus is going forward. This is the guy who said in chapter 1, verse 21, that to live is Christ. He is so excited about Jesus Christ and who he is that Christ himself is his very life. This is a joy-filled guy. But now notice what he says in this passage. In fact, if you drop down to verse 27 of chapter 2, He's referring here to Epaphroditus, who had become ill and almost died from it. We'll talk about that in just a minute when we get to Epaphroditus. But look what he says at the end of verse 27 about it. He said, indeed, he was ill near to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, meaning God allowed him to recover from the illness. He didn't die. But then he says, he also had mercy on me in saving Epaphroditus' life, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, it's pretty clear, but it's worth pointing out what he says there. First of all, if Epaphroditus had died, which he almost did, he was a very close friend of the Apostle Paul. These guys were connected with each other. They loved each other. They were uh, very tightly uh, in relationship with one another. If Epaphroditus had died, the Apostle Paul would have grieved that. The, The death of a loved one is a devastating experience. He would have had sorrow. But he not only says that would have been a sorrow for me, and somehow that doesn't counteract the fact that he's still the joy guy. But he also says, that would have been sorrow on top of the sorrow I'm already experiencing. His death would have just added more sorrow on top of the sorrow that is already right now in my life, even as I am writing to you about joy. He fully owns the fact that he experiences sorrow, grief. In fact, the next verse, he unpacks that a little bit. He says he experiences anxiety. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, back to you so that you may rejoice in seeing him again and so that I might be less anxious so that my anxiety level, worry, will go down. (laughs) Meaning what? Meaning he experiences anxiety. He's worried. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, this is not really new information for you. At uh, the uh, 11th chapter of the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul talks a lot in very vivid uh, terms about some of the sorrow that he experienced as an apostle traveling around the, the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, travel was difficult. He talked about essentially being a homeless person. He often didn't have a place to sleep. Some nights he did, other nights he didn't, so he'd sleep out under the stars. Uh, he didn't have his like super synthetic down bag from REI. So, I mean, he's talking about being cold, not necessarily knowing where breakfast is going to come from, being hungry, being a danger from uh, bandits that would roam around back then or wild animals that were uh, often uh, there. He was in danger of uh, people who would physically assault him because of the gospel, which happened to him several times. Authorities who beat him literally for being a Christian and incarcerated him more than once. And at the end of that long list of difficulties and pains and sorrows, he says, on top of this, there is my anxiety for all the churches. He says, as if it isn't bad enough of what's happening to me, I live my life in this kind of perpetual state of worry. I happen to think the Apostle Paul probably had really short fingernails. I don't know, I can't prove it. But like there's just always this, ah, you know, because he would start a church and he would kind of train them up for a little while and there's all these young Christians who are growing and, and then he'd leave, he'd move on to start the next one. He'd always worry, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to be led away from the truth? Is that church going to implode? Is it going to abandon the gospel of Jesus? And so he was always worried about that. He was worried about that here for the Philippian church, even though they were doing relatively well. So what do we learn from all this? Well, hopefully it's clear, and I don't know about you, but I find it really encouraging 
that the joy we're talking about does not mean the total absence of things like anxiety or grief or pain. Friends, there will come a time where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 tells us that. Oh, thank God for that. Where every tear will be gone, where joy will be absolute and where grief and sorrow and anxiety will be a thing of the past. God, how I long for that day. But that's not now. That's not now. It's not in this world. And that doesn't mean that joy isn't real. Practically, this means that if I'm a Christian and I'm experiencing discouragement or sorrow or grief, that does not mean that biblical joy is a fraud. Whatever the Bible means about this transformational joy that it's telling us we can and should be experiencing right now as Christians in this life, whatever it means by that, it does not mean some sort of like fantasy emotional state where just nothing affects me negatively because I love Jesus. Like, you know, I love Jesus so much that, yeah, um, a loved one just died, but like, I'm good. I just move on. doesn't affect me. I just... I'm, I'm good. I love Jesus so much that I just lost my job or my family's falling apart and I'm just skipping and humming a tune and just having a grand old time all the time, 24-7, 365. This is not some sort of Christianized version of nirvana where I enter this kind of perfect emotional state of balance where I'm just totally unaffected by the world around me. That's not what's being said here. It's a very realistic view of joy that understands the world is broken, but it also does not, it, it also means that if I'm a Christian experiencing discouragement, it does not necessarily or automatically mean that I'm failing. And I'm failing, right? I get up in the morning and I'm like, I have grief in my life, and I read the Bible and it's talking about joy, and that's not what I'm feeling right now, and I haven't felt it for a while, so I must be a failure as a Christian. Well, maybe, maybe not. It's not quite that simple. <laughs> it's not automatically true that I'm failing as a Christian just because I'm experiencing grief or sorrow. That's very clear in the Apostle Paul's example. Let me just say briefly, um, we don't have time to unpack all this, but it needs to be said at least briefly. Sorrow and grief are dangerous for a Christian because they threaten to overwhelm us. So we experience them, that's normal, but they can be overwhelming, and that's, that's the danger. Um, if I cheat and skip ahead to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible tells us what to do with our anxieties. It says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And it promises that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say the anxiety or the fear will go away, but it says your heart will be guarded you know, from being overwhelmed by it. So we know what to do with our anxiety, and we need to take it to Jesus. But the point is, it doesn't go away. Just because I'm feeling grief or anxiety or sorrow doesn't automatically mean I'm failing. The Apostle Paul had both sorrow and life-transforming joy at the same time. I don't know how that relates to you personally, but I, I'll be honest. I, like, this is an experiential reality to me, not just something I've seen in the Bible. Um, I actually can relate for the first time in my life to the Apostle Paul's statement that he has anxiety for the churches, I grew up in church as a kid. I read that passage for many years, and I'm like, well, I can understand how you'd be sorrowful if people like beat you. That makes sense. <laughs> if you were lying awake at night and you, know, you were freezing cold, I mean, that doesn't sound very pleasant. Like, that all makes sense to me. He's like, anxiety over the churches. I couldn't really relate to that until I became an elder and a lead pastor in a church, this church. And I got to tell you, there are moments in my life where I experience anxiety for this church, for you. 
by the grace of God, this doesn't happen very often, maybe a handful of times a year. It's not a real regular occurrence, but it happens enough that it's caught my attention. There are some uh, moments where I will have so much anxiety about something that's facing our church or experiences that many of our congregation members are dealing with in their life that like I'll go to bed just with all that stuff in my head. And I usually set my alarm for a quarter to six, six o'clock in the morning, depending on my schedule that day. And like, I don't know if you've had these experiences, but sometimes I'll just like wake up and I know it's nowhere near six o'clock. And I immediately, as soon as my eyes open, even though I can't see anything because it's dark in the room, all of the anxiety floods back into my mind. And I'm like, oh, I can see what's happening. Stop it. You know, I'm just telling my brain, stop it. Turn it off. <laughs> you know, you're not going to fix any of it tonight, so just roll over and go back to sleep. And sometimes I'm able to do that. But there's those nights, like I say, I don't know, a handful of times a year, I just cannot get back to sleep. You know, I hear Amy breathing deeply beside me in the bed. She's asleep. I'm like, don't toss and turn too much. I don't want to wake her up, you know? And so I'm like, uh, but I'm not getting back to sleep. And so I've got to just get up out of bed. And I'm like looking at my clock and it's like 4.30 or something. I'm like, oh, okay, Lord, this day is starting 90 minutes earlier than I wanted it to. And I go out in the living room and I just, I sometimes I'll read those verses, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I'm like, God, I just got to, I got to talk it all out with you. I just got to give it over to you. I've got to pray through these anxieties because I'm not getting back to sleep. But I want to make sure that my mindset rolling out of bed isn't my mindset as I roll out the driveway that morning. This is work, and it needs to be done constantly when we're wrestling with grief and with pain. But, but the point of this is that the existence of grief and pain by itself does not automatically mean that deeper biblical joy isn't possible. So, is biblical joy realistic? The Bible's answer is yes. Just look at the Apostle Paul. A real-life, flesh-and-blood example of somebody who's actually experienced it. And moving more quickly through the next two, we also see a lesson from Timothy's life. Timothy was a protege of the Apostle Paul. He was, uh, the Apostle Paul was his mentor. He traveled with him. He ministered with him. And what we learn from Timothy's example is that biblical joy is what empowers. It gives us the energy for a life of self-giving, a life oriented toward others. What he says of Timothy uh, in chapter 2, verse 19, he says, My hope is to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered of news for you. Now look what he says about him. For I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. That's what he tells the Philippian church. If I send this guy, he'll care for you the way I would care for you, but you know what? Nobody else will do that, even all the other Christians I'm around. Verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth and how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. He says Timothy is a guy whose whole life has become oriented toward honoring Jesus Christ by laying himself out and pouring himself out for other people rather than for his own personal agenda. In fact, he's saying Timothy embodies what he said earlier in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. We looked at this a couple of Sundays ago. Do nothing, he tells the Philippian church, from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count other people as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, you can do that to an extent just because you read it in the Bible and you agree that it's a good thing. I can be a person who's fundamentally oriented toward finding joy in my own life and in what I can achieve and accomplish and still give a little bit of money to the poor. Still give a little bit of money to my church because that's what I'm supposed to do. Still spend a little bit of time with that person in need. Like, 
Pouring out for others can still be a part of my life, but it will always be a limited part of my life, and it will always be colored by the fact that I'm oriented inward. It's, it's, it's on self, and I'm always going to be saying, I'm willing to give, but how much do I really have to give? And every time somebody encourages me to give more, I'm getting a little like, yeah, but how much more? Because that's showing that deep down inside, my heart really wants to hold on to most of my stuff. Or people tell me, pour out and reach out and connect with other people. I'm like, yeah, but how much? And which people? And it's showing that deep down inside, part of me is like, I, I, I want to hold on to my me time. How do I become the kind of person who's so oriented toward the gospel of Christ and toward other people that those questions don't often even occur to me? It's just like, God, how can I use the resources you've given me to pour into other people? The kind of person who thinks that way is somebody who just naturally thinks in terms of how can I connect with other people. That was Timothy. By the way, I think it would be a mistake to write this off to Timothy's um, presumed personality or natural bent. I mean, we don't know a whole lot about who Timothy was other than what's written in the Bible, but he certainly was a companion of Paul's and a faithful servant, and we might be tempted to just think of him as, well, I don't know, some people are just real oriented that way. They're just, they're just helpful people. They love to, you know, to help. Maybe he was just kind of a mercy-gifted person. You know, maybe the language of spiritual gifts in the Bible helps us understand Timothy. He just had a gift of service and helping. He was just a helper. He was like Paul's executive assistant, you know? I'll just travel with this guy and help him out because that's what I love to do. I don't think that's actually the case if for no other reason than the Apostle Paul deployed Timothy more than once and into leadership positions where he sent him out and put him in charge of a church. He was in charge of the church at Ephesus for a long time, which is where the Apostle Paul wrote the letters of First and Second Timothy to him while he was the senior pastor of that church, establishing the work from the ground up. And by all accounts, he acquitted himself very well as a leader. This guy had gifts. This guy had leadership ability. But Timothy was not a guy who was interested in achieving his own career objectives. He wanted to advance the kingdom of God. He could very well have said, you know, Paul, you're stuck in jail here and like you can't go anywhere. So maybe this is the sign from the Lord that I need to take off. I'll pick up your mantle and I'll become the new apostle Paul, okay? Like if God lets you out of jail, great, we'll meet up again. But in the meantime, I'm taking off. I'm going to become the man because he probably had the chops to do it. And I don't know, maybe that would have been fine if he had done that, but he didn't do that. Paul says he stuck with me to meet my needs in service of the gospel of Christ because that's the kind of guy he is. So is biblical joy realistic? Is it possible in this life to experience such joy in Christ that it can transform selfish me into somebody who delights to pursue Christ's objective and see other people win? The Bible says, yep, it is possible. Just look at Timothy. Just look at Timothy, a real flesh and blood example of somebody who is living the truths of biblical joy in a sinful, broken world. And then thirdly, we have the lesson of the example of Epaphroditus. <clears throat> and what we see in him is the idea that biblical, enjoy, biblical joy empowers faithfulness through difficulty. It not only transforms us sort of from inward-focused people to outward-focused people because we're ultimately focused on Christ, and that's what joy does. It pulls our hearts toward him and his kingdom. But it also then gives us the, the oomph, the guts, the energy to keep on that path even when life is really hard. I mean, in the example of the Apostle Paul we saw just a couple minutes ago, we saw that biblical joy and grief and sorrow can coexist in the same person side by side, but that's all we said. Epaphroditus' example takes that a step further. We now see how those two relate to each other. 
And what we see is that biblical joy gives the power to somebody to continue to persevere in pursuing Christ in the midst of the pain and the grief and the suffering. Joy will give the heart the ability to stay faithful to the gospel. Now, in Epaphroditus' case, uh, let me remind us who he was. Uh, We talked about him a little bit back when we started Philippians several weeks ago. He was actually a member, it appears, of the Philippian church. He was part of their congregation. Uh, By the way, best estimates that historians have is it probably would have taken two and a half to three weeks to travel from Philippi to Rome, which is where Paul is at this point. So what happened is they heard in Philippi that he was incarcerated in Rome. They took up a sacrificial offering. They gave a bunch of money to meet his uh, physical needs uh, while he was in prison. And they sent that money by the hand of one of their own congregation members, Epaphroditus. So he had to agree to take this money, um, undertake this long, arduous journey. I don't think they had air conditioning in their cars back then, so it was probably a rough journey There was exposure to travel dangers, to illnesses. Well, apparently he did get sick. Probably toward the end of the journey, he ended up making it to Rome, but he was very ill, so much so uh, that they thought he was probably going to die. Well, by the grace of God, he recovered. Uh, He didn't die, and the Apostle Paul is celebrating that. And so he says, I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, uh, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my needs. I want to send him back to you now. Because he's been longing to return, because he was distressed, because you heard that he was ill, and he wants you to know that he was okay. They couldn't just like Skype each other or FaceTime each other and say, guys, I'm okay, right? So they just heard these rumors that he was sick, and that was weeks ago. He wants to go back and let them know he's okay. And indeed, he was ill, but God had mercy on him. It goes on toward the bottom, uh, down to verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Meaning what? Meaning Epaphroditus knew what he was getting into. When he took on this commission to take this money and to go support the Apostle Paul, he understood we're not just meeting the needs of a guy that we know and love. This is all about kingdom work. This is about helping and participating in the spread of the gospel through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and I want to be part of that. And that's going to mean several months of my life to journey to Rome and to hang out there and then to come back at a minimum. And there could be all sorts of things that go wrong. There were all sorts of risks. And he still raised his hand. He said, here am I, send me. I'm willing to take the risk. Why? Paul makes it very clear what his motivation was. Because of the cause of Christ. His joy in Christ was so significant that he was willing to place his life in risk if it advanced the gospel. And then when the bad things did come, he continued to persevere. Is biblical joy real? Can you experience so much joy that it actually keeps you motivated to serve God even when all hell breaks loose in your life? The Bible says, yeah. Look at Epaphroditus. There's a modern-day Epaphroditus I've alluded to before. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you know her story. If you don't, do yourself a favor this week and Google and read some of her stuff. Um... She is a a prolific author and writer. Um, She's been a quadriplegic for going on 50-something years now, broke her neck as a teenager, paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, She's well into her 60s now. Um, She's had cancer. She's survived cancer. She's had chemo. She deals with chronic pain. And and far more, she's lived much longer than most quadriplegics do with all of the limitations and the anxieties and the sufferings that her life has brought her physically. 
And seriously, if, if you haven't read or watched any of her stuff lately, uh, YouTube is your friend. Go on YouTube and just Google Johnny Erickson Tata, J-O-N-I, so she spells her name, Johnny Tata, T-A-D-A. Just go on YouTube and search Johnny Tata suffering. And then just like watch all, you know, there's like conference messages and stuff she's done. And you just hear her tell her story and how she's processed it. You know, she, she tells like what's going on in her head and in her heart. And what I love about her, among many other things, is that she doesn't just ask God for the strength to endure. Like, God, get me through this so that I can get to a place where it's better. She has come to see and accept her pain and suffering as a God-ordained means of bringing himself glory through her life. And I've got to be honest, it just, it makes me shake my head. It's a little bit dumbfounding to me, but that's her actual experience. And, and it's not like, pie-in-the-sky, smarmy unrealism. And I wanted to say that just because the word smarmy is awesome and I never get to use it. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of this, this sort of overdone, you know, syrupy, like, oh, Jesus is fine, so it doesn't matter if I'm in a wheelchair. It just doesn't bother me. It does bother her. Like, there's, there's no fairy tale idealism when you read her stuff or you listen to her speak. She'll be honest about how hard it is and how depressed she's been and how difficult and discouraging and, and how much pain she deals with. She's honest about all of it. And how many times she said, God, I cannot do this anymore. But she's also experienced biblical joy strongly enough that it keeps lifting her. It's like it just buoys her up. It's like a flotation device that even as the waves of grief or pain threaten to overwhelm and pull her down to the bottom where she gets stuck in the mud of sort of self-absorption and suffering, the, the joy of Christ keeps buoying her up so that her nose stays above the waves. It's a beautiful and realistic picture of how joy in Christ keeps us faithful no matter what happens. So, is biblical joy realistic? I think this passage is telling us, yes. If you don't believe me, look at the Apostle Paul. Look at Timothy. Look at Epaphroditus. In fact, look for people like that. That leads us to our, our last point. What, what are we supposed to do with this? If there's all these real-life examples of joy, so what? Well, there, there is actually one command in this otherwise sort of biographical um, passage, and it's in verse 29. He tells the church at Philippi, receive him, that is Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. When you see people like this, church, this is what he's telling the first century church in Philippi, and by extension, the 21st century church like Harvest. When you see men and women like this, receive them and honor them. To receive them, it's a hospitality word. It's like make space in your life. When Epaphroditus gets back, don't just say, hey, I don't even know how you shorten that name. Paph? Epi? I don't know, whatever they called him. Dude, good to see you again. Glad you're back. Anyway, game's gone. I gotta leave. Glad to see you, you know, and then like don't have a five-minute atrium conversation. Receive this guy. Make space in your life to hear from him. He's been gone for months. He's got a lot to tell. You want to expose yourself to people like this. Make time. Make space in your life to be around him. That's what it means to receive. And then to honor to honor such people. Think of him in your mind as separate from the crowd, which is an interesting thing to tell a church, right? Because we're not supposed to have partiality toward anyone. We're not supposed to reject anyone because God doesn't reject us. God treats us without partiality. And that's true. That's true. And yet, the Bible says, honor such men. Set them apart from the masses in your mind because not everybody is like this. And when you see somebody who is, that's the person you want to go try to expose your life to so that they can rub off 
on you. So the point of this kind of takeaway, I think, is pretty clear. It's it's go out of your way to make space in your life for people who actually experience biblical joy in a way that it's transforming and changing their lives. And not every professing Christian fits that bill. And that's okay. That's not to slam them. And it's not to cut yourself off from them. It's simply to say, who do I know that is demonstrating an experience with God that seems different than the average and better? That's the person I want to expose myself to. I thought about this a lot uh, many years ago. It's one of the things that drew me close to my wife, Amy, before we were married. Actually, before we were even dating. She told me I could share this. Um, we were actually pretty good friends with each other in high school, long before we were uh, an item. <laughs> so for several years, we knew each other really well and, and spent quite a bit of time interacting. And there were various things that drew me to her, even though we weren't interested in each other romantically. Um, one of them was persistence in the faith. Um, her... Uh, father, my now father-in-law, was a pastor at a large church in town. We lived in the same town, went to the same high school, but attended two different churches. Uh, My father-in-law was a pastor, uh, associate pastor at one of those churches, and um, had the unfortunate experience of um, finding out about a sin that the senior pastor had been involved in for a long time that clearly disqualified the senior pastor from biblical ministry. But he kept doing it anyway, and he kept leaving the church. And so to make a long and very ugly story very short, um, it fell to my father-in-law to be the whistleblower and call the spade the spade. So he did. Um, and it would be great to tell you that the church um, handled it with grace and truth. It's not what happened. Um, what largely happened, it's not surprising, but it's tragic. What largely happened was that people essentially said, well, when it finally came out, the senior pastor sort of made a mock confession and said, let's just sweep it under the carpet and move on. And most of the people in the church said, good idea. Because they were comfortable and they were more loyal to their senior pastor than they were to the words of their savior. And so it kind of became an awkward church splitty thing. People were on both sides of this issue and that became really awkward and a bunch of people left the church and eventually my wife's family had to leave the church and uh, she had to watch as her dad became the bad guy for bringing it up. Now, isn't that weird? The guy who's actually trying to honor God's word becomes the bad guy and the guy who's overtly sinning is the good guy. Like, how do we, that's what sin does. It just warps your perspective, even in, Bible-believing churches. Well, remember, my wife's a teenager at this point. Amy's a teenager. Rough time to have all that relational stuff happen and have to change churches and have kind of a dark cloud over her family's name. Now, here's, here's where this comes into us. I, I knew her this whole time. And despite all of this, one thing I noticed about her is she never soured on God. She never soured on God. She never took it out on God. And I think even maybe more significant than that, she never soured on the church. She soured on that church (laughs) for good reason, but not the church. And by the way, that wasn't normal. There were a lot of people who left that church and didn't go to other churches. They just walked away from church, and some of them walked away from God because of the hypocrisy that they saw in that church. Some of them ended up in my father-in-law's living room talking about, like, how can you still love God after everything that's happened to you in this church? And they tried to kind of help people through that. And some people say, I can't get it. I'm just, I'm done. I'm walking away. I'm done with church because I've had this bad experience. There was nothing else there to sustain them through it. But she went off to Bible college and found a healthy church and grew in her love for the church and met me and we started, well, we'd met, but we started dating and then I eventually got in a ministry track and she's like, yeah, I want to be a pastor's wife. I'm like, are you kidding me? No, she wasn't kidding. This struck me as remarkable even before we were dating. Like, I'm like, that's not, that's not normal. <laughs> 
that people go through an experience like that, but then don't sour on the church. A lot of people did. She didn't. Why? I don't know. All I know is this is the kind of person the Bible says you want to make space in your life for and to welcome. And boy, howdy, did I make space in my life for her. (laughs) We got married. (laughs) You don't quite have to go that far most of the time. I'm a little bit of an overachiever, but you know, that's okay. Find people like this in your church and in your life and and make space for them. What do you look for? Well, we've been given a couple great examples right here in the text. You look for people who are uncommonly oriented toward meeting the needs of others because they believe in the cause of Christ. They don't meet others as a way to get where they want to go with their life. That is where they want to go with their life. That's not normal. When you see people like that, get around them. Or you see people dealing with high-risk situations. They choose to go on the mission field and live an uncomfortable life. That's kind of interesting. If you can connect with those people, connect with them. Get yourself around them. Or they're dealing with pain and suffering, and yet they maintain their love for God. You want to be around them, yes, to encourage them, but also to let them encourage you. Just once again, that doesn't mean that we avoid other people. That doesn't mean you take people who had a bad church experience and so now they want nothing to do with church and you say, well, then I'm dead, you know, you're dead to me. I'm done with you. <laughs> no, that's, of course that's not true. Um, the person who's in pain or questioning God because of it, they need empathy. They need a listening ear. They need people to sit with over coffee and talk about the hard questions. It's a wonderful, beautiful ministry. I hope, hope the members of our church serve everybody that God brings across our paths as we have opportunity to do so. Nevertheless, we are told to honor such men and women who experience a joy with Christ that helps them navigate some of the hard stuff of life so that they can rub off on us. If I can encourage us in closing with just a couple of thoughts. One is to share openly with one another when we are in relationship. I'm thinking of our community life groups, although this isn't just related to those groups. It it can apply to any relationship in the church. There can be times, maybe this isn't you, but there can be times where we're hesitant to talk about our struggles to hold on to the hope of Christ when things are tough because the situation isn't resolved yet. And it sure sounds a lot better if I can say, you know, one time I went through a really hard time, but God got me through it. And I have this wonderful story of faith I can now share with you. And sometimes I feel like until I I can say that to a group of Christians, I probably shouldn't say anything. But that's actually not the case. Uh, I want to encourage us to live out loud with one another, Um, to be honest, obviously not with everybody in the church and just spelling my stuff to everybody in the atrium or whatever, but when I'm in relationship with people, to be honest with one another about what I'm doing with Christ, where I'm struggling, how I'm processing the feelings and the emotions of living in a sin-broken world, let them speak into me and let my example of finding joy in Christ speak to them. That's the beautiful life-on-life stuff that happens, but it can only happen if we're honest and we let each other in. And when you found somebody like that, um, make as much time to get around, them as, get around them as possible. Maybe that means, I don't know, it could mean a hundred things. It means we need to go shoot golf together. We need to get a cup of coffee together. And we're like, wait a minute, my goodness. Like, I'm already doing this and this and this and this. Do I really have to go pursue more relationships in order to get to the heart of what God wants me to experience? Probably. What better use could we have of our time for our time than being instructed and inspired by the example of people who are being transformed by gospel joy? Friends, just a couple of weeks, as we said earlier in the service, we're celebrating Easter. It's the most amazing thing. 
that has ever happened in the history of the universe. That God became man and died for your sin and my sin to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to reunite us with God the Father and with the hope of eternal life. And then he rose again from the dead, which is cool enough in and of itself because it's a miracle, but it's much more than that. That's not just good news for Jesus, that's good news for you and me because we can experience life eternal and we get a down payment on that life right now. It's called gospel joy. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. That's what this book is holding out for us. And if we want to know if it's real, all we have to do is look around and see the lives of people being changed by it. Let's lock arms together and pursue joy in Christ for his glory And God, that we would be known as a church for that, that I would be known as a person for that. Amen? To pray with me. God, thank you so much for the truth of gospel joy. Uh, You insist in the Bible repeatedly that it's real, that you've made a way for us to come into contact with true life because of your life and death and resurrection for us, a life that transcends just our circumstances, a life that transcends the happiness that we can achieve on our own And God, the language is so big and so lofty. I confess that even though I believe it, there are times I struggle to wonder the extent to which it can be experienced. But I want to thank you for the example of people like the Apostle Paul. Of these other two guys that he mentioned, he knew them intimately and personally. We don't know them, we just know of them. We read about them, but we know one another. And I want to thank you for the joy in the gospel that is sustaining so many members of this church right now through hard things. And I pray that they would be open and willing to let a few other safe people in on that process so that they can be encouraged to continue carrying on in a hard time and so that the rest of us can be inspired by their example. God, would the joy of the truth of the beauty of who you are so pervade my heart and our hearts that it forever changes us as a people. Make your name great in and through this congregation this Easter season, I pray in Christ's name.